Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with Dr. Ken Berry. He's a fan favorite, and this is his third podcast with me. He previously joined me in episode 111 and episode 139. If you're not familiar with his work, he is a physician. He is a best-selling author and passionate advocate of health, and his YouTube channel, which services over 2 million individuals, is one of my favorite resources to send patients to. He is active in his community and has been practicing at the Barry Clinic since 2003. He is known for his very direct, no-nonsense approach to health and wellness. He has two books, Lies My Doctor Told Me and the recently published Kicking Ass After 50. He has other resources, including Common Sense Labs. Today, we dove into recent published research from The Lancet, about the impact of a diagnosis of diabetes, lowering life expectancy, as well as a recent ADA statement, American Diabetes Association, and the estimated costs of diabetes care. We spoke about the need for proper diagnostic modalities to diagnose insulin resistance in an earlier state. We spoke about relevant labs that he utilizes in his practice and feels are very important for identifying those at risk. We spoke about the recent American Heart Association syndrome called CKM or cardiovascular kidney metabolic syndrome, the role of GLP agonists, as well as continuous glucose monitors and glucometers, his thoughts on plant-based diets, proper human diets, and so much more. I know you will find this conversation invaluable and why he is a fan favorite guest. Well, Dr. Barry, always a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Cynthia. Yes. Well, I would really love to start the conversation focusing in on a topic that I know is, you know, near and dear to both of our hearts, you know, really focusing in on metabolic health. There was a Lancet article from September stating that every decade of earlier diagnosis of diabetes hastens the death and the life expectancy by three to four years. What are your thoughts here? We're almost in 2024. What is going on with metabolic health? It does not appear to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Well, metabolic health is actually, we're noticing drastic improvements in a certain subset of the population, but the the vast majority of the general population, their metabolic health continues to deteriorate, which is very sad but also very true. And the the Lancet article is, I think, absolutely accurate. Now, there's so many presumptions that the Lancet authors made, so many uh, kind of uh, foundational understandings, paradigms of theirs that, that go into the writing of this article. And I think it'd be very helpful for people to break those down. But yes, if you have either uncontrolled diabetes, and this goes for type 1, type 2, LADA, MODY, any form of diabetes, if if you follow the standard, if you follow no advice, you're probably going to hasten your death even more than three and a half years for each decade you have it. But if you follow the standard advice, 
the state-of-the-art advice, the scientific consensus advice, then yeah, you're probably going to be knocking three and a half years off your life for every decade that you follow the American Diabetes Association recommendations. I think it's that's probably true, if not worse. And there are more and more people are waking up every day that are like, I don't want to, you know, knock 10 years off my life because I had type 2 diabetes for 10 years, for 30 years. I'd like those 10 years of life, please. To I'd like to tack those on at the end. And there is a way to do that, but it's not by following the ADA recommendations. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the more I understand about a lot of these organizations, they're not designed with metabolic health in mind. It's designed to kind of potentiate this focus on pharmaceuticals, very little on lifestyle medicine. And and you and I both know that lifestyle really is that first crucial piece to lasting metabolic health. And what's interesting is the ADA had a statement published in its economic cost of diabetes care in 2022, the economic burden of diabetes. When I read this, I just about fell out of my chair. The total estimated cost is 412 billion with a B dollars, including over 300 billion in direct medical costs and over a hundred billion indirect costs attributable to diabetes. That's staggering. Yeah. Well, another thing that I think, and that's a very apt figure. We need to talk about that. We need to have a, a public discussion about the cost of diabetes in the United States, but also another cost that people forget is the environmental impact of that. A lot of my plant-based friends and vegan friends love to talk about, you know, the carbon footprint of raising beef or raising animals, but they don't really want to talk about the carbon footprint of the healthcare industry. And when you're mismanaging millions and millions of diabetics, they're going to need lots of healthcare. They're going to need lots of pharmaceuticals that are made in factories, which have a very large carbon footprint. They're going to need lots of inpatient hospital care, which is going to have a huge carbon footprint. And so not only just the economic costs, the drain on our economic system, but the greenhouse the gas effect, the carbon footprint effect, you know, all the waste that's generated by this healthcare and by the pharmaceutical industry, I think that's also a, a conversation that needs to be had publicly. Yeah, it's interesting to me. And I was having a conversation with my husband, who's an engineer, he's not a healthcare provider. And I was giving him a medication that was being given subcutaneously. And he was watching all the tinker toys, you know, you have to take off, there's a package for the needle, there's a package for the syringe, there's these alcohol wipes. And he looked at me and he said, this is for one injection on one person. And I said, imagine the magnification of most individuals if they're getting insulin. And there are a lot of type ones, obviously, but also type twos that are taking insulin. Just the net impact day after day of injections, swabs, pharmaceutical agents, you know, one in four healthcare dollars in the US is going towards diabetes care. 61% of which is directly attributable to diabetes. So it really becomes this large net impact that I think a lot of people may not even be aware of. And certainly you mentioned the environmental impact. And I think most individuals, unless they're working in healthcare, they have absolutely no idea where do all these plastics go, all these health hazard bags, you know, these health hazard containers. I recall that I have a child with EpiPens and he didn't need his EpiPens and they expired. And I couldn't get rid of them. I tried to take them to the pharmacy. I tried to take them to the pediatrician's office. No one wants to take them. I said, what do I have to do? Throw them in the garbage? They were like, yeah, just throw them in the garbage. 
I was like, and this is going to go in and landfill and just sit there till, you know, who knows when. Yeah, the amount of disposable plastic used in the healthcare industry is gigantic. A lot of people think that we really did a big thing by banning plastic straws. And what you don't understand is that average size hospital, just one day of existence of the average size hospital, the majority of the clinical procedures, which would become literally would be obviated if you reversed 90% of the cases of type 2 diabetes, you would protect the oceans, you would protect the environment from so many tons of plastic that it would make uh, banning plastic straws a kind of a, a laughing frivolity. It's just foolishness to think you've really done something when at one day of a large hospital, their plastic waste is crazy. So how many tons a year of plastic are generated by the healthcare industry? Most of it unnecessary. Most of it made necessary only because of the bad nutrition advice and bad advice coming from organizations like the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association. That's interesting. Many years ago, there was a postdoc at the hospital system that I worked at, and he was Australian, and he was an MD, PhD, really bright guy. And this is in the early 2000s. And he said, Cynthia, I don't know what it is about you Americans. And he's like, and I say this in the most loving way possible, because I think you all are great. But why do you wait so long to intervene on diabetes? This is 20 years ago, he was saying this. And now, You know, those words really ring true to me that we wait until people get diabetes. So what do you think are some of the biggest impediments to getting earlier diagnoses? Do you think it's the kind of traditional allopathic model where you have to hit a certain metric in order to be said, okay, you've transitioned from insulin resistance to diabetes. Now let's get aggressive because we know that most diabetics are undiagnosed for five to 10 years before they actually fully present with full-blown diabetes. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back even further than that. I think when the germ theory of disease became very popular a long time ago, we're talking many decades ago, and it kind of overwhelmed the terrain model of disease. And the terrain model of disease as presented by its creator was full of holes. It's full of inconsistencies and errors. And I'm not in any way advocating that we go back to the terrain model exclusively. But what we have to have is a hybrid model. When it comes to infectious disease caused by bacteria and fungus and most viruses, I think absolutely we should use the germ model of disease. But the problem is, is that mainstream medicine many decades ago decided, perhaps consciously, perhaps unconsciously, to apply the germ theory model to all of medicine. And that's what we're seeing. And so if you have something like type 2 diabetes, then you need a specific drug for that, or you need a specific infusion or a specific injection or a specific medical procedure for that. You have this problem, therefore, here's this product that's going to, you know, the average person would think, oh, it's going to reverse it or cure it. No, 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 no. It's just going to manage and maintain it because the germ theory says that type 2 diabetes is a chronic progressive disease. And so it's very hard for doctors who have practiced in under that paradigm their entire career. It's very hard for them to go, wait a minute, maybe type 2 diabetes is just a chronic carbohydrate toxicity or a chronic carbohydrate overdose syndrome. Maybe if we stopped poisoning the human body with too many highly processed carbohydrates, maybe we should look at type 2 diabetes as a poisoning event. And so when you adopt that paradigm, 
what's the paradigm? If someone has been poisoned, well, you want to re- stop the offending poison. That's the number one treatment. And then two, you want to do something if you need to acutely to cancel the ongoing poisoning happening in the body, right? And so it's so hard for mainstream doctors and dietitians to understand, look, you're following a model that never leads to remission. It never leads to reversing the type 2 diabetes. By definition, it does not lead to that. Many of the FDA-approved medications for type 2 diabetes, they got their FDA approval by being slightly better than placebo. Right. So literally, if the medicine lowered someone's hemoglobin A1C by 0.2% or 0.3%, boom, there's your FDA approval. And they, they don't have to prove that they're better than any other drugs on the market. They just have to prove that they're just a little bit better than placebo and not acutely dangerous. That is the bar that they have to, to cross to get FDA approval. And so It's very hard for doctors to understand this. And when it comes to type 2 diabetes uh, in particular, you're right. You can actually check certain labs on a patient and you can predict type 2 diabetes 10 years before they develop it. But in mainstream modern medicine, the average doctor acts like, oh, nope, you don't have type 2 diabetes. So nothing we need to do about this. Even though their A1C is now 5.8, 5.9, it's like, oh, it's prediabetes, you know, cut back on the candy and soft drinks, and I will check it again in a year. Or, and then almost no mainstream doctor checks a fasting insulin level. And that's the key. If we could just get every doctor to start checking fasting insulin levels on any human, not just adults, but also children, if they have even one risk factor for type 2 diabetes, if they would just start checking a fasting insulin, that's kind of your time machine. You literally can look into the future and go, oh, you're headed straight towards type 2 diabetes. We have to make some changes now to the terrain, not only to your body, but your diets, because that's part of the terrain, right? And so I was just watching a discussion between a very popular plant-based cardiologist and the guy was saying, do you check? Uh, You know, he's like, no, there's only 15% of people, adults who have type 2 diabetes and and maybe 30% who have uh, insulin resistance. And the doc was on my side was going, what? Have you checked fasting insulins? No, we don't typically check that. And so this is a very intelligent cardiologist who's very concerned and is trying hard to do a good job, but is literally putting on self-blinders. Every day he, he hangs that stethoscope around his shoulders and he cannot see what's right in front of his face is that Over 80% of adults in the United States have at least one marker of metabolic disease. If you add a fasting insulin to that, I would guess it goes up to 95%. And that's in adults. Now let's talk about children, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. If you checked a fasting insulin on every one of those children that has at least one risk factor for developing type 2 diabetes you would catch it years before they even started doing any damage. But the average doctor's blind to that. And I I wanted so bad to jump into the scene of that interview and say, I would challenge you for the next month, doctor, and I won't name any doctors because I'm not trying to call people out. For the next month, will you check a fasting insulin on every one of your patients? And the cost of a fasting insulin now is, is 10, 15, 20 bucks, depending. And just that challenge alone, it would become impossible for that doctor to ignore the metabolic disease that's right under his nose each and every day that he is currently blind to. 
And I think that as your message gets out there and my message and others in this space, just that one key change to medical practice, because it's very hard to recommend a plant-based diet to people if when you check their fasting insulin, their fasting insulin is 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 or even higher. You're going to go, gosh, this doesn't make any sense. I thought a plant-based diet was the healthiest choice, but these people are all hyperinsulinemic when they're following my plant-based diet, and that can't be good. And then they're going to go to pubmed.gov, and they're going to type in hyperinsulinemia, and they're going to realize that hundreds of chronic medical diseases are closely associated with a patient's level of insulin in their blood. And that's it. That moment, they either have to wake up or they have to consciously bury their head in the sand. And almost no doctor is going to make the conscious decision to say, I'm not going to check any more fasting insulins because I don't like the results. Any good doctor is going to say, I've got to learn more about this. I was not aware that fasting insulin was this powerful of a marker, of a proxy marker. And now that I know that, I need to adjust my practice accordingly. I need to adjust my the nutrition advice I'm giving accordingly. And then that's it. And so I think the degree to which we get mainstream medical practitioners, both doctors and dietitians, to start looking at the fasting insulin, that's when all the foolishness stops. Because it can take five or 10 years for someone's hemoglobin A1C to get up to 6.5, right? A lot of doctors don't take pre-diabetes seriously. I consider it to be early type 2 diabetes. It's not pre-anything because studies at the University of Tennessee and Memphis and many other places have shown definitively that damage is being done to the kidneys, to the heart, to the brain, to the retina during pre-diabetes. You don't have to wait until that A1C gets up to 6.5. Damage is already being done. And so if damage is being done, then that by definition is a disease. And so you have to give dietary advice that's going to get not only the hemoglobin A1C back down to normal, but also that gets the fasting insulin back down to normal as well. And once you start giving that kind of nutrition advice, guess what, Cynthia? You're telling people to eat a proper human diet because if you're eating too many carbohydrates, too many highly processed carbohydrates, you're going to have hyperinsulinemia. And at some point, you're going to develop pre-diabetes, which is eventually going to turn into type 2 diabetes. And then all the disastrous complications, not only for that individual patient, but also for their family members who love them. And also for the healthcare industry who has them to treat those patients. And then for the country, the nation as a whole, who has to pay for that treatment if people can't afford their own treatment, and then has to deal with all the plastic waste, all the car- the carbon footprint that comes out of that, all of that stuff literally could be solved overnight if we said, hey, you got to check a fasting insulin if somebody has at least one risk factor for type 2 diabetes. Within months, that would tear down the entire problem that you and I are right now talking about. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, I think it's such a good point that a fasting insulin is very inexpensive. If your healthcare practitioner is uncomfortable ordering it, you can go to companies like Own Your Labs. I have no affiliation with this company, but they beat LabCorp and Quest costs. It's a yeah, I think they're. I think OwnYourLabs.com. Also, I'm not affiliated with yeah. them. I think their price now for a fasting insulin is nine or ten dollars. Skip your, you know, your fancy coffee drink and go get your fasting insulin checked. And and I think that it really begs to have the discussion about 
what are the labs that you feel you've mentioned a few, you've mentioned the fasting insulin, the A1C, what other labs do you think are really indicative slash helpful when you're trying to differentiate who's at greatest risk for going on to develop type two diabetes versus people that have a little bit of time to make some targeted changes immediately that can course correct? Yeah. So the hemoglobin A1C is the preeminent test. Now, there are multiple medical conditions, multiple medications, and also personal habits that can affect your hemoglobin A1C. I've got YouTube videos about that. I'm coming to like a glycated albumin much better because there are multiple things that can make a red blood cell live a longer life or live a shorter life. We're seeing in the carnivore community, many people's red blood cells are living longer. And so they're getting this falsely elevated hemoglobin A1C of 5.7, 5.8, even 5.9 sometimes. And they're like, wait a minute, I I used to have type 2 diabetes. I don't like where this is going. But if you check a glycated albumin on these people, it's stone cold normal because their nutrient-dense carnivore diet is giving the red blood cells all they need to live for 120, 130, maybe even 140 days. That gives it more time to glycate, and they're getting a falsely elevated A1C. We also know that chronic overconsumption of alcohol can give you a falsely low A1C, but it doesn't affect the glycated albumin level. I like the A1C for the average person, but there are some people that you need to check a glycated albumin instead because whether you're eating the worst diet or the best diet, whether you, regardless of what medical condition you have, almost without exception, if you're an alcoholic, if you're smoking meth, it doesn't matter. Your glycated albumin is going to tell or is going to tell the truth. The next test, which you can tell I'm in love with, is a fasting insulin because it removes so much bullshit. Not only does it make immediately obvious that the American Diabetes Association's recommendations, the recipes that they recommend on their website, is complete and utter bunk. It makes that immediately apparent, right? It makes all the recipes that DaVita recommends for people with chronic kidney disease, it makes that not only look like bunk, but it almost like makes it look criminal. Like, why would you be recommending a recipe to someone with chronic kidney disease when the recipe itself is going to make their condition worse? I, I don't know. That sounds unethical, if not illegal to me. It makes also all of, so much advice that are given by influencers on the internet, on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. It makes their advice foolish on its face when you check a fasting insulin, you realize that that fruit smoothie or that yogurt bowl or that whatever beautiful thing that they're saying you should drink or eat every day, that's going to raise your fasting insulin. And that's very, very unhealthy. And so with that $10 test, the fasting insulin, not only do you shut up all of the mainstream health and nutrition advice, but also all of the the alternate advice that many people who have, they their eyes are open now. They're like, the American Diabetes Association, their recommendations are foolish. They're dangerous, actually. And so then you everybody starts looking for an alternative, right? That's human nature. It's like, well, that's obviously not the solution. Where's the solution? And, and millions upon millions of people find this, you know, this pretty influencer on Instagram and they're like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And so I'm going to buy all of their supplements and I'm going to start drinking this fruit juice smoothie and I'm going to start making these beautiful yogurt bowls. Well, a fasting <laughs> insulin for 10 bucks, you realize that's not the answer either. And you don't need all those supplements because none of those supplements are going to help your fasting insulin level. 
they might lower your blood sugar a little bit, but they're not going to affect the A1C or the glycated albumin much. And they're not going to affect the fasting insulin level at all. And so really with those two tests, you can ferret out and ignore 95% of the bullshit coming at you from all directions, both mainstream medicine and alternative medicine, naturopathic medicine, holistic medicine, all that. Those two tests just eliminate the bullshit. I'm going to start calling them bullshit eliminators. Because if you check an A1C <laughs> and a passing insulin and they're not both normal, you're doing something wrong. Whose advice are you following? And I don't care how many thousands of dollars you spend on supplements or infusions. If those two numbers are not normal, you're not metabolically healthy. Another great marker is triglycerides, right? And so if, if you're following a diet and it's making your triglycerides higher than 150, that's bad advice. You need to reassess that nutrition advice. Another is the HDL cholesterol level. If you're following an advice and your HDL is very low, mm -mm. if you're following a lifestyle that causes your HDL cholesterol to be very low, that's bad. You should stop that. And so uh, really, there's five tests. Of course, you want your fasting glucose, but that can be misleading in many, many, many ways, right? You want a hemoglobin A1C which can be misleading for a few people. You, If you're one of those people, and most people, if they've researched their own medical conditions and the medication they're taking, they know if they have something that affects their A1C level, then you're going to check a glycated albumin. And then people who really are invested in their health are going to check a fasting insulin. And then most doctors are going to check a lipid panel, but they're only going to focus on the total cholesterol and the LDL cholesterol, very often completely ignoring the triglycerides which are absolutely a proven marker of metabolic health, and the HDL cholesterol, which is also very strongly associated with being metabolically healthy if it's normal. With those tests, you can bypass so much in the way of personal suffering from chronic diseases yourself. Then you, you can obviate all the suffering your family's going to do that as you chronically suffer from type 2 diabetes, or another metabolic condition. They're going to have to come visit you after you've had that amputation. They're going to have to take care of you when you get home with that amputation. You're blind now. They're going to have to take care of you, or they're going to have to pay somebody else to take care of you. You've had that heart attack or a stroke. You now have severe kidney failure, or you're, you have the post-stroke sequela. Now you're in a nursing home or assisted living. Who's going to pay for that? It's either going to be your family, or it's going to be your nation. Neither of which I think the average person would like to burden. We, nobody wants to be a burden. But if you follow bad nutrition advice, then at some point you will become a burden to either your family or your nation. That is inevitable if you follow bad nutrition advice for too long. And nobody wants to be a burden. We want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so I think just those few tests are going to give you more information than you would get from spending thousands of dollars, reading hundreds of books, signing up for hundreds of coaching programs and this and that and the other, or donating to the American Diabetes Association every year and having a fundraiser for them and blindly following their nutrition advice. I think this is such an invaluable conversation because I think in many ways, when people get a metabolic health diagnosis, they're told they have diabetes, they have PCOS, they're hypertensive, they've got cardiovascular disease, et cetera. They assume that this is just a process of aging. I hear that from so many people. They think it's normal to slowly become insulin resistant. They think it's normal to have aches and pains. They think it's normal to be on 20 different medications. And in cardiology, we had patients on 30 to 40 medications because you'd put them on one 
And then they need two more to correct the side effects they got, you know, put them on a a diuretic and then they have low potassium. So then they go on potassium, then they get gout. I mean, it be, it's kind of like it becomes this very overwhelming system that we're working within, but everyone that's listening can do these labs and everyone Absolutely. can have an honest conversation with themselves. So we talk about lab work. We talked about some of the statistics. What are your thoughts on glucometers and CGMs? And the reason why I'm asking is that I take heat almost every single day on social media. How dare I suggest that someone who does not have diabetes monitor their blood sugar? I mean, lately, it's been a lot of physicians who've come after me. But in particular, there's a vegan cardiologist who likes to come after me specifically for this purpose. Where do you feel like CGMs and glucometers can be beneficial for our patients to better understand the net impact of nutrition and stress and lifestyle? I think they're invaluable. I think you can't even put a price on their value for somebody who does not have type 2 diabetes. And I've also gotten some kickback from and typically plant-based or mm-hmm. vegan-friendly cardiologists. They've actually accused me of doing harm to people. Like, you're going to cause eating disorders in people by recommending glucometers or continuous glucose monitors to people. And there's actually a new research study out, I'm sure you've seen it, that shows that that people without any diagnosis of type 2 diabetes at all, they benefit metabolically from wearing a continuous glucose monitor for a few weeks. You immediately start to see what causes blood sugar spikes. When you eat it, this it causes this. When you eat this as an alternative, it only causes this. That's brilliant. That how I mean, I would love to put a continuous glucose monitor on every single living human being on the planet for two weeks and say, learn from this. If something spikes your blood sugar, that's junk. You don't need to be eating that on a daily basis. Maybe for your anniversary or your birthday, it's fine to have a little bit of that. But on a daily basis, you don't need to be eating anything that spikes your blood sugar. And we're talking about people who have no diagnosis at all. We're talking about young, metabolically healthy people in their teens and 20s and 30s. You put a CGM on them, and that's another great way to say immediately, oh, man, you ate this, you ate, you drank that fruit juice smoothie that that influencer recommended, your blood sugar went up to 190. That's a huge red flag that that's bad nutrition advice. You ate that beautiful yogurt bowl, right? And your blood sugar went to 210. That is a huge red flag that that is not a part of a proper human diet. And so I think I find it almost conspiratorial, Cynthia, that some of these plant-based and vegan cardiologists are so opposed to this. And I don't think that they're consciously trying to keep people in the dark, but it makes me worry about their unconscious motivation. Like, why are you so worried that people will see that the foods that you're recommending spikes their blood sugar to above 140. Why are you worried about that so much that you're coming after me personally? And and I, you know, I always hesitate to assign malintent to people. And I don't think it's conscious. I think they mean well. And I think they truly believe that a plant-based diet is the proper human diet. But it's worrisome, isn't it? It's weird that they're so aggressively against continuous glucose monitors. And uh, I think as more research comes out on CGMs, I think that they'll have to back away from that stance and they'll have to shut up about that because it's going to become clearly self-evident that when somebody wears a continuous glucose monitor for two or three weeks, they learn about their diet. They learn, oh, I shouldn't eat that. 
very often at all because, man, look what that did to my blood sugar. And even young metabolically healthy people, after a couple of weeks of wearing this, uh, there was a, a study done with Harvard medical students who were uniformly in their 20s. And every single one of them reported, I had no idea that fill in the blank would do this to my blood sugar. I'm going to eat less of that in the future, right? And I think if you put this on 20-something-year-old anybody, whether they're a Harvard medical student or whether they're currently unemployed or on, on you know, unemployment benefits, they're going to be like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Because, you know, people, by definition, a human being, by definition, wants to be healthy. They want to make smart decisions. But if they've been diluted and misinformed their entire life, how can they possibly be trusted to make smart decisions? And the vast majority of people in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s have been misinformed by authority figures who they should be able to trust. They've been misinformed. And when you put something like a CGM on them for two weeks or four weeks, immediately they're like, whoa, I had no idea. I will change my behavior immediately. And I think, first of all, doctors don't believe that patients want to be healthy. I think that they uniformly, almost without exception, believe that that patients are lazy and dumb and don't care. That's what the average doctor believes. And I don't believe that's true at all. I think the average patient wants very much to be healthy. They want very much to improve their health, but they don't know how because they've been given so much false information, so much misinformation that in many cases they have given up. It's like, I don't think any of this crap, it works. I'm just going to eat whatever I want and I'll just take all these pills and injections because I don't even know what the truth is anymore. And I don't think anybody knows. But when you prove yourself like you do every single day and like I do and like other people who are in our sphere of influence, when somebody says, okay, I've, you know, I've tried 400 diets. I've listened to every health influencer out there. I've listened to the ADA, the AHA, but I'm going to just, I'm just going to suspend my disbelief. And I'm going to just do what Cynthia tells me for a month or two. I mean, what can it hurt, right? Okay. At the end of that month or two, guess what? Their metabolic disease is measurably improved. It's measurably better. Not just subjectively, because subjectively they're going to feel better. Yeah. But they can check black and white lab values and go, wow, just in a month? My A1C went down that much? Just in a month, my fasting insulin went down that much? maybe there is an answer. And so not only are you giving great nutrition advice that's going to protect their health and improve their health and protect them from that three and a half years of lost life per decade, they're going to feel better too. And they can immediately test. Well, let's see if Cynthia Thurlow knows what the hell she's talking about. Let me check an A1C and a fasting insulin in my triglycerides. Let me check a CRP. Let me check these labs. Boom. They are demonstrably better in a month or two or three. That's the verification people are looking for. And when the average patients, and I'm talking to doctors right now as, as much, well as I am patients, you think your patients are dumb and lazy and don't care, but you give them a system like the proper human diet in a month, they can see black and white differences in their labs. And when they look in the mirror, they can see a difference in just their appearance generally. And they know how they feel each and every day. They can notice, I feel so much better. I'm less mentally foggy. I'm, I just feel better. People are hungry for that. People are on fire for that. And once they understand the foundational principles of what Cynthia is talking about, what I'm talking about, or any other number of people, they're like, that's it. That's how I'm going to eat for the rest of my life. And they're immediately, not only are they highly motivated 
to learn as much as they can and to implement as much as they can into their daily lifestyle and their daily diet. Now they're almost uh, a missionary, right? They're out telling their friends and family spontaneously, sometimes annoyingly, right? Because the if the people aren't ready to hear it yet, but they're not like, dude, you got to stop eating that. You got to stop drinking that. That's going to make you metabolically sick. And in, no, I've been practicing medicine for over 22 years now. And I have never had a patient <clears throat> who becomes a missionary for a prescription medication or for a medical procedure like they do when they understand the principles of a proper human diet, they implement it. They see not only I feel better. Yeah, I feel better. I look better. My clothes fit better, but also all of my objective markers. When I have my labs checked, they're all better. My blood pressure is better. My blood sugar on this continuous glucose monitor is better. My A1C is better. Fasting out albumin, all that's verifiably better. I can't even argue with it. They're sold. They're like, that's it. And so I've never seen patients become missionaries for like, oh, I took, you know, uh, ride and now I'm out on the streets telling people, you need to take ride. Nobody's doing that because ride lowers your A1C two or three tenths of a percentage point, has a whole host of side effects, and it, it costs money. Nobody's going to promote that because all, the only people are going to promote pharmaceuticals are the pharmaceutical companies. And let's just talk about this for a second. The FTC just sent out a letter to several influencers on social media and said, hey, you're taking money from the American beverage lobbying company, right? You're getting thousands of dollars and you're not saying on your post, this is a sponsored post. And these influencers are saying things like you can drink Coca-Cola in moderation. It's fine. Well, guess what? They got a check to say that. And then they didn't disclose that to the followers who love and trust them. And you can look these people up if you'd like to. And almost all of them are registered dietitians. That's why they got a letter from the FTCs, because they are in a fiduciary responsibility position. You've got initials behind your name. You can't just be taking $1,000 from Coca-Cola and then saying it's fine to drink Coca-Cola in moderation. That's The FTC will fine you for that. And they, uh, I think 12 of them got letters saying, hey, you need to cease and desist immediately or you can write us a check. Either way, so many people don't realize that that kind of stuff. And these influencers are more and more very concerning. They're starting to say, well, obesity is genetic or type 2 diabetes is genetic. And the, the plant-based cardiologist I was talking about earlier, he tried to say that type 2 diabetes was genetic. And uh, the guy he was having a discussion with was like, what are you talking about, dude? Hundreds of thousands of people have reversed their type 2 diabetes back to normal by eating a proper human diet. How can you even pretend that that's genetic? Now, you may have a 1% or 2% predisposition to obesity or 1% or 2% predisposition to type 2 diabetes. Yeah, absolutely. You might have that little tiny genetic predisposition to develop those, but that's never going to make you obese. It's never going to make you type 2 diabetic. Only your diet can do that. And inappropriate dietary decisions made on a daily basis for many, many years are going to give you those things. So that's what I want people to be to watch for is, is now the influencers are saying it's genetic that you're obese. It's genetic that you have severe obesity. It's not your fault. But there is there is a, a FDA approved medication that can fight against your genetics right? It's genetic that you have type 2 diabetes, but there is this new drug 
that you can use. To me, that's dastardly. I mean, that they should be embarrassed that they're saying such things coming from a position of authority that their follower base gives them. It's very concerning, and I don't think it's going to end well for some of them. But people have to be on the alert for this kind of misinformation that very often is being put out there by mainstream associations and mainstream news media. Nobody cares about your health. Everybody just, they want your clicks and they want your dollars. That's literally all they want from you. They want your eyeballs on their news story or their ad. They want you to click on it and they want you to send them seven bucks or more. Literally, that's all they care about. And all the donations they get if they're a nonprofit, like the American Diabetes Association, who gets millions of dollars each and every year from big food companies and big pharmaceutical companies. They don't give a damn what your A1C is in reality. They just want your money. And so people have to protect themselves because you only have one life. And if you if you waste that life listening to the wrong authorities, you and your family, that's who's going to suffer. Yeah, it's really interesting. I recall from our last conversation, you were using and so many good points that you just made 140 milligrams per deciliter. So when people are, whether they have a fasting glucose, they're looking at CGM data, glucometer data, 140 is about the max you ever want to see on a device. Because when you go over 140, you're damaging the intimal lining of your arteries. You are damaging the very delicate blood vessels to your eye. You're damaging arteries and capillaries and distribution beds in your kidneys. You're damaging your heart. And so I wanted to make sure that I I talked about that because more often than not, I get asked the question, what's your threshold? Like if you were to go have cake on your birthday and have nothing else in your stomach, And I always say, if my blood sugar goes above 120, that's unusual for me. And I really want to know what's driving it. So 140, I know based on our last conversation, and I 100% agree with you about our patients, they are not dumb and lazy. These are individuals who want to do better. They want to be healthy. They don't want to be on a bunch of medications. They don't want to feel poorly. They don't want to be beholden to a system that really is focused on pharmaceuticals for a lot of lifestyle issues. And so one of the things that I found really interesting that's relevant to this is there was a recent AHA, so American Heart Association has a new diagnosis. They're now calling the cardiovascular kidney metabolic syndrome or CKM. This is a presidential advisory group for circulation. This is a consensus statement. They identified that the cost of this metabolic syndrome that has now evolved is 1.7 trillion annually. It is characterized by the metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and also these high triglycerides. And what I found interesting was they talked about lifestyle modifications, which I was like, that's great. But what I didn't love is the early use of medications, specifically these GLP-1 agonists. So let's talk about that for a second, because I know there's a lot of interest. I know we have influencers. We have very thin people in Hollywood that are using GLP-1s to stay really thin, but they're marketing this for our metabolic syndrome patients and they're de-emphasizing, which I believe they're going to focus more on the meds as opposed to the lifestyle changes. Sure. What are your thoughts on the GLP-1 agonists for this particular population? Yeah, great question. So let's talk about that syndrome that they've just discovered right? What's another thing that you could call that? Metabolic syndrome. Yep. Right? What's another thing you could call it? Hyperinsulinemia. So when you call it what they called it, it makes it sound like this crazy, sciencey, 
complicated thing. I don't know. The average person is going to be like, I can't even pronounce that, much less, well, I don't know what to do about that. If you're saying kind of the same way with metabolic syndrome, you're like, well, syndrome kind of sounds like maybe it's genetic. I don't know. But, it, you know, it's all these different seemingly unconnected things. But when you boil it down to it's all hyperinsulinemia. Now they're like, oh, hyperinsulinemia. Okay, so that's high insulin. Okay, let me look that up. You can Google that. Even if you're, you know, a truck driver with an eighth grade education, you can Google that and go, oh, elevated insulin. Okay, so I wonder if there's a test for that. Lo and behold, yeah, on onyourlabs.com, you can get that check for 10 bucks. Okay, so what causes hyperinsulinemia? Well, in one person out of a million, it's an insulinoma. But in 99.999% of people, it's eating too many carbohydrates in your diet. Okay, so just the average, well, let's keep stay with our truck driver. He left school in eighth grade. He's like, okay, so what foods cause my insulin to go up? Okay, he looks that up. Now he's got a list. Okay, I'm going to stop eating those foods. Well, guess what? That huge syndrome that the American Heart Association is wanting to talk about, our eighth grade truck driver can cure that if you call it by its true name and simplify it as much as possible. It's hyperinsulinemia. That's what it is. And so that's why I try to simplify these things And as they evidently are trying to complicate it. Oh, metabolic syndrome was too easy to understand. Let's call it this new syndrome. And then, of course, it's genetic. I mean, how could you even have a, a condition with that many letters in it, that many syllables? It's God it must be genetic. So I just need to take these GOP-1 inhibitors, right? And so this is the new pharmaceutical darling. This is one of the things many of the registered dietitians on social media are promoting now, many of them paid by the pharmaceutical company, many of them not disclosing that. Uh, attention, FTC, if you're watching this, they maybe need to get a letter in the mail as well. Uh, many doctors are talking about GOP-1 inhibitors, and they are absolutely being sponsored, either directly or indirectly, by the pharmaceutical corporation. They're not disclosing that. Uh, maybe the FTC needs to look into that as well. What you're basically doing is you're taking the patient's ability to improve their own health, you're taking it completely away from them when you give it a name like this, right? Then you also hint around that it's obesity and type 2 diabetes and this new syndrome, they're all genetic. Nothing you can do about it. So just take this weekly injection. And yeah, it's, ex it's expensive as hell. And yeah, there's a black box warning on it. And yeah, there's there are literally no long-term studies in humans showing if there's any long-term consequences of taking this. We literally don't know. We're, we are actually doing a long-term experiment in humans to see if there's any terrible side effects. You are the experiment, the patient. When you go to the pharmacy and get that, we're depending on you and your doctor. If anything really terribly bad happens to you, we want you to report that to your doctor. Your doctor is going to report that to the database. And then in 10 years, we'll do a study of all you guinea pigs. I mean, patients. And we'll see if there's any long-term ramifications of injecting this medicine weekly. That's literally what's happening right now, Cynthia. And, and the average patient has no clue that they're part of the long-term study. There's never been a long-term study proving these medications to be safe for long-term use in human beings. Every doctor listening to this, have you, is, you know, part of informed consent would be telling your patients, you know, there's no long-term study showing this is actually even safe for human use, right? Just, I wanted you to know that up front. Now, do you still want the prescription or not? Why are doctors not informing their patients of that? I don't really know. 
because I would, and I know you would, if I were like, well, you know, there's no long-term study on this. So therefore, if you still want to continue knowing that, then that's informed consent. But doctors aren't doing that, especially the doctors on TikTok and Instagram. They're not saying there's never been a long-term study. So they're deluding people to try an experimental substance made in a chemical factory that you inject into your body without knowing if it's safe long-term. I mean, there's probably adjectives you could use. I would encourage people to choose your own adjective for that. What would you call that? Yeah, Some I, people I think... would call it evil. Yeah. Some people yeah. would call it short-sighted. I don't know. You pick your own. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 
for 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. It's interesting at Thanksgiving, a family member uh, mentioned that they bought stock in semi-glutide and they, they wanted to know my opinion. And I said, well... I know that I have colleagues that are using it short term with their patients and and giving them a very short term use. But my greatest concern is especially because most of my listenership are women and men north of 40. What's happening as we're getting older, we're losing muscle mass. We know based on the research that's been done, most of the weight that people are losing is related to loss of muscle mass. And if muscle is this organ of longevity then what are we setting ourselves up for? Like maybe you've lost 20 pounds, but it's going to take you a long time to gain the muscle back that you've lost. And it's so important for insulin sensitivity. Yeah. And I think you're relative. That's probably a brilliant financial Mm -hmm. investment, but I would not recommend it to a family member to actually use. I would recommend a proper human diet. But yeah, I think it's a, a right now over the next 10 years, it's probably a brilliant investment, but that doesn't make it ethical or moral. I think back in uh, Nazi Germany, there were some corporations that it would have been very wise to invest in back then. They were making things like explosives and poison gas. That doesn't make that investment ethical or moral, but you probably make money on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. In my prep for the podcast, I was reading about endogenous. So the GLP-1 that our body makes internally, the half-life is about two minutes. Contrast that with the half-life of these drugs, which is much longer. I mean, sometimes they're dosed twice a week, sometimes once a week. Just think about how powerful it is to suppress all these downstream effects in the body. And here's another problem with the GLP-1s. You have GLP-1 receptors in your brain and you have them in your gut, right? You also have them in your kidney. You also have them in your liver. So, of course, the pharmaceutical companies are wanting the effects that come from the receptors in the gut in the brain. But do we know what happens when you engage those receptors in the human kidney or the human liver? Where else are GLP-1 receptors? They're pretty much everywhere in the human body. Now, is that a problem? Was that looked into? Do we know what happens when you activate those receptors with long-acting GLP-1 receptor agents? Do we know? No, we don't know. We don't. We have no idea. And so if their uh, GLP-1 agonists were specific to the receptors in the gut and the brain, that'd be less bad. I wouldn't be as worried, but I'm telling you now, I am very worried about the long-term ramifications of these medications. 
I think that this is going to end very, very badly. I don't think we have any clue what it what happens to the human kidney when you activate those receptors long term, every day, constantly. I don't think we have any clue, and I, but I think we're going to find out. And we're going to find out in this long-term experiment that's being performed on patients who have not given their consent to be in this experiment. Any young district attorneys out there listening? Sounds, I don't know, sounds unethical to me, maybe illegal. That's such a good point. Now, there were a couple of questions that came in specific to <clears throat> lipids and looking at diagnostic tests like a CAC, a coronary artery calcification score, looking at the specialized carotid CIMT. What are your thoughts in terms of, you know, when in your workup with your patients, are you leaning into these diagnostics that are giving really good information about what could potentially be going on? Are you looking at ApoBs? Is that something that you focus in on with your patients? Because I know the LDL is starting to kind of seemingly fall out of favor. We're starting to focus more on the ApoB portion. What is your kind of knee-jerk reaction when you have someone that's at higher risk, someone that's working diligently on insulin sensitivity? They may be pre-diabetic. Where do you are using those diagnostic tests? I have a very low threshold for ordering CAC scores and CIMTs and CT angiograms of the, of the heart, depending. I think that effectively anybody with a single risk factor should probably have those tests performed because they're so safe, they're so non-invasive. That And then the CT angiogram of the heart, thats you're going to use that for people who are at higher risk. But I have a very low threshold for ordering those. I think they're super underutilized. Now, the CAC score is not perfect, not a perfect test. But if you blend it with the CIMT, then it becomes a pretty darn awesome test, both of which are completely non-invasive. There's really no risk of having those two tests performed in concert. And you glean so much information about the, the patient's current status, right? And then that can, and, and I think typically the main use of those is either to follow the patient or perhaps sometimes more importantly, as a wake-up call where you can show them on your computer monitor, look, dude, this damage right here has already been done. Some of it may even be permanent. This is important. This is serious. You need to change right now and stay changed for the rest of your life. In many people, that's that little extra bit of motivation they need to go, okay, that's it. PhD forever. I'm never strained again. But the pro, and so now ApoB and LP little A and all these other sexy markers. The, the problem I have with these markers is, first of all, I consider them to still be somewhat experimental. I don't think that we've been checking them long enough. I don't think we have a large enough patient database. I don't think we have enough meaningful research showing that they are a useful proxy marker for heart attack and stroke. That's my first problem with them. My second problem with them is the vast majority of physicians, if they check an ApoB and an LP little A, what's going to be their solution if they're abnormal? It's the prescription path, right? It, there's not going to be any discussion because, I mean, ApoB and LP little A, that sounds very genetic, doesn't it, right? And I, I think there's some new, and the LPL cholesterol is a dead model, and it's about to be really dead, when the new research study that my friend has done, he's lowered his LDL cholesterol more by eating Oreo cookies than Crestor or Lipitor or Zocor can lower. Okay. And so once that 
research gets out there and people start laughing at, at cardiologists when they recommend Crestor or Lipitor, they're like, dude, I'll just eat 12 Oreo cookies a day. Why would I want to take a pharmaceutical for that? The LDL is dead. Nobody's going to be talking about that anymore in just a few more months. That uh, no doctor, the only doctor who's going to be the doctor who's not on social media and doesn't keep up with his or her reading. That's the only people that are going to be trying to scare you with LDL cholesterol. It's going to be a, a, just a dead model. And so now they're like, okay, I guess I, they tried for a minute to talk about TMAO. Remember that? You don't hear much about TMAO anymore because it, it was shot in the head by multiple just egregious, foolish things that would elevate TMAO. But now their sexy darlings are ApoB and LP little A. That's the ones they want to talk about currently. But there's some research in the pipeline, Cynthia. And when he comes out, is going to make them look just as foolish as trying to talk to somebody about their total cholesterol. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about, dude? So I'm not a big fan of those. Uh, the, I used to really love the NMR lipoprofile profile with all the particle sizes and, and numbers. The more I look at that, it's like, why? Why even check that? Why do I care? Because I know that if my patient adopts and sticks to a proper human diet, all those numbers are going to go where they need to go anyway, right? I think all of that, trying to talk about these little particles and these little markers, it's the dying gasp of the germ model of disease when it comes to trying to treat a chronic metabolic disease with the germ theory model. It just doesn't work. It's never going to work. All it's going to do is make the big pharmaceutical houses billions of dollars. It's going to make you as a doctor, basically, uh, you're going to be castrated as a doctor. You're not going to have any meaningful effect on your patients. But now you'll have a good effect on the pharmaceutical houses, bottom line. They'll probably even bring you some lunch, free lunch, maybe even take you to a steak dinner, right? But you're not going to have any meaningful benefit any meaningful impact. You're basically impotent as a healthcare provider. If you continue down this road of the germ model, when it comes to chronic health, that it's a dying model. It, it is literally the end is in sight, but you can't see it if you're not looking because all you see is the advertisements on CNN or Fox News that are all big pharma ads. Or if you get on social media, you see all of these influencers who are getting checks from the Coca-Cola and Pepsi, either directly or indirectly, or getting a check from some other corporation who doesn't give a damn about your health. They just want to make money. So I, I think that we're very near a tipping point when it comes to chronic medical conditions and metabolic disease. I think we're very near a tipping point where the average person is going to be like, that's all a load of bunk. I'm not doing that. I'm going to focus on the food I eat and the junk I avoid. And I'm going to focus on living a proper human lifestyle. And I think that is going to lead to the directly to the bankruptcy of billion dollar corporations. And it's not that I'm against the corporations. It's that I'm for the health of my individual patients and for all of the other patients out there on social media who happen to listen to me. I'm for their best health. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here to make a million dollars. I'm here to save a million lives, to save a million legs from getting amputated, a million eyes from not going blind, a million kidneys from not having to be on dialysis, a million granddaughters and grandsons not having to go visit their grandparents in the nursing home because it's not fun to go visit your relatives at a nursing home. Nobody wants to do that. So you're literally tearing apart a family because of the improper nutrition advice that grandma or grandpa got. That's, I mean, 
how unethical, how immoral is that? I don't know. It feels very immoral to me. But yet a lot of influencers are taking a check to promote a lifestyle and a diet that's going to lead directly to that. And so I, I have great hope that as more and more people wake up and then they start to impact their friends and family and say, hey, you need to listen to this podcast, Cynthia Thurlow. You need to watch this YouTube video by Dr. Barry. You need to buy this book by uh, Professor Ben Bickman. The more that word of mouth spreads, I think it's a matter of time. I think the dominoes are beginning to fall. And I think eventually there are going to be large corporations that are sued out of existence, that are probably litigated out of existence, and perhaps even criminally prosecuted out of existence because of the dastardly behavior over the last few decades. And I'm, I'm happy to see that because ultimately I'm here to help people have a healthy life and live a healthy life and eat a healthy diet. That's what gets me up every morning. Well, I'm so very grateful for the work that you do and the empowering message that you share with your community and obviously with my community. I know that you recently co-authored another book. I have your first book, you know, Lies My Doctor Told Me, which is one I recommend frequently. Let my listeners know about the new book. Obviously, I think it's conditioned for individuals that are north of 50. So you and yeah. I are in that demographic. But yeah, let us I know what's, have, what's in there. I actually have two new books. One is Ooh. called Kicking Ass After 50. And I wrote this with my good friend, Zane Griggs, who lives in Nashville. He's been a fitness instructor for decades. He's 52 or 53 now. He looks amazing. He would put any 35-year-old to shame. I'm also in fairly good condition. I don't go to the gym, but I do work on the farm. And so we decided to write this book. And, and it is written towards men, but every principle in it applies directly to women who are either over 50 or if you're in your 40s and you can hear 50 coming and you don't want it to be what you've seen your mom and dad's 50s to look like, it doesn't have to look that way. Regardless of where you're starting from right now, you can be that 50-year-old that everybody's envious of, okay? You can be that 50-year-old that the grandkids are, they beg to come to your house because they know you're going to be in the backyard kicking the soccer ball with them, or you're going to be doing that craft with them because you feel good and you're healthy and you're still physically active and you're, you still got plenty of muscle mass and your bones are very strong. You might even be in the backyard climbing a tree with them because you're not worried about osteoporosis, even though you're 55 or 60 or older. I've got one guy in our private group. He made a, a shirt that says kicking ass after 70. Uh, to echo the book, right? He's like, I'm over 70 and my grandkids, they literally want to come live with me because we're outside doing stuff. I'm not in the recliner. I'm not on the sofa. I'm up. I'm active. I'm happy. I'm engaged. That's how. And ha so, you know, people used to realize that our elderly were the repository of wisdom and knowledge. But now we're like, oh, they're old and washed up. Put them in the nursing home. And that's not. And so if you hear 50 coming or you're over 50, that's what young people think about you. There's only one way to prove them wrong, and that's to read this book and start living this life and prove them wrong. And then uh, I know you and I were talking about all these labs earlier. If anybody wants to know more about labs, I got this little book called Common Sense Labs that I wrote with my good friend Kim Howardson. Kim was misdiagnosed. She had hypothyroidism, took the doctors, took 12 doctors 20 years to diagnose her. She was given every pharmaceutical in the book, she had hypothyroidism and they, they just missed it over and over and over again. So she was motivated. I was motivated as a doctor to say, hey, check a damn fasting insulin, right? 
So we basically put all those labs in this book that tells you not only what labs you need, also why you need them. So when your doctor says, well, I wouldn't even know what to do with the results. (laughs) There's a paragraph that literally tells your doctor, this is what you do with the results. This is why you should order that. Or if your doctor says, well, your insurance ain't going to pay for that. We got the ICD-10 codes in here that'll get it paid for if you can't afford to go to ownyourlabs.com and and get them yourself. So Common Sense Labs, I'll send you a a link for that. It's on uh, Amazon. There's also an audible version of Kicking Ass After 50 that's got a bunch of bonus content. Basically, in between the chapters, Zane and I shoot the shit talking about this particular topic or another and how people have gotten it so wrong for so long. And so there's an audible and a a paperback on Amazon of Kicking Ass After 50. There's a paperback of Common Sense Labs. I I think it would be difficult to do an audible of a lab book. So there probably is not going to be an audible of that. Oh, I love all the contributions. And to tell you, we could have easily made this a three-hour podcast because I had so much prep, so many questions. I'll have to have you back for a fourth time to talk. You know, people wanted to know about women you know, the things that are happening in our bodies between perimenopause and menopause and insulin sensitivity and how yeah. things start to shift with these hormonal fluctuations. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to connect to your amazing YouTube channel, which is prolific. And you have an amazing community there. Obviously, we'll put links to your books as well. So I've got this little YouTube channel. <laughs> it's not little. <laughs> That I try to, to give good nutrition and good medical advice on. If I'm feeling particularly snarky, you'll find me on Twitter. If I'm feeling loving and helpful, you'll find me on Instagram or Facebook. And then we have a private community now with thousands of people because there's a lot of stuff I can't talk about on YouTube or I'll get a strike, right? And so inside of our private community, we answer all questions. Some questions on YouTube, I'm like, we're, we can't really talk about that here. But we can talk about that in the private group. And some people just need a, a tribe of people around them with a common goal. That's what our community is. And so it, literally it's five bucks a month to get in the door. That's how much it costs, if anybody's wondering. So yeah, again, I'm not trying to make a million bucks here. I'm trying to save a million people, but I do got to pay the bill. So five bucks a month, you can, I guess, shoot me if that seems offensive, but we try to keep it as affordable as possible. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm working on about three other books right now that are in the works that'll be out sometime within the next three months to 13 years. I don't know. Blame it on my ADHD, but I'm always trying to help people improve their health simply Simple steps, eliminate this, add this, and it very it almost always does not include a prescription medication, and it almost always does not include an expensive supplement. You don't need any of that crap to start to improve your health today, right now. As soon as you click the end button on this interview, you can start improving your health, or you can start helping somebody you love improve their health. I love the message. Thank you again. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals 
and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 